Have you ever heard of religionism? I hadn't either. That's why I came up with the word um, that is very sparsely used from what I can tell from a thorough dive on the history of the word in, his, in I guess, the internet. Um, religionism is a word that can hopefully help people overcome the anxiety attached to words that poorly describe certain mental states that are very common and tough to address with the existing uh, verbiage that is needed to properly explain uh, the state of mind that is attributed to these terms. The terms that religionism is set to expound upon are the nuances of cult mindsets. Uh, cults, as we know them, are by definition small organized groups that follow a strict dogma, usually to enforce radical ideals of fundamentalism, violence, or, and all of these are, are usually not all included in a cult-like ideal, but anything from radical, anything to fundamental, anything to violent, anything uh, related to oppressive or suppression of extreme self-control type methods. Um, and cults do not have to be including all of these or even a majority. It could be any one of them could be at the heart of a cult. But they always have a specific dogma and organization, and they follow a specific cult doctrine. Um, you also have uh, the dilemma of ideals. And historically, ideals have been very helpful to help carry on good ideas through generations. Ideals are usually articulated in such things as allegories, as Plato used, or metaphors, or uh, parables. Uh, these are the storytelling methods to portray an idea that should not be applied to a single literal scenario. These are usually principles that are applied um, across a broad spectrum of scenarios and the, the finer details can be distracting from the principle. So through history, we see ideals being carried through the use of parables and metaphor such as anything from fairy tales to scripture to um, all sorts of children's storybooks and myths and legends. All of these things carry valuable principle-based knowledge in a way that humans like to hear new things, which is stories. It's very, very valuable to portray a very important set of data points in a story, especially when they are, you know, high concepts of intelligence or high concepts of emotional intelligence, whether it's, you know, intellectual intelligence or emotional intelligence or spiritual intelligence. These are things that benefit greatly from being told in a story for children and adults alike. This is why um, most people who are familiar with the movie Interstellar, this was based on a textbook to help 
students and PhD programs understand quantum physics and quantum mechanics and quantum possibilities in physics. Um, <laughs> in this textbook, use the hero's journey to portray these very, very high-level intellectual concepts to some of the smartest physicists in the world. Because at the time, these ideas uh, were so radical, the way they married the spiritual with the science, that it needed a better way to communicate and be relatable. So stories have been an essential building block for higher level intelligence and intellect and, um, and emotional intelligence and spiritual alike. Uh, they just have different terminology throughout the times and are used for good and bad things alike. Um, so the interesting dilemma that we're running into is... Um, almost paradoxical in nature where ideals have been used for both good and bad. Cults define the ways new ideals form both good and bad um, in the eyes of the Romans and Jews at the time of Jesus Christ. He was seen as a cult um, the, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., what he was starting in the eyes of many was a cult. Um, and, you know, in, in the eyes of many people like Joseph Smith were seen to have started a cult. And they're cults on the proverbially bad side as well, such as terrorists and others throughout time who have you know, even in small numbers have caused great damage. Um, the interesting phenomenon is that cults seem to be neither good nor bad inherently other than the narrative of the ideals that they want to bring upon the world in context, in the bigger context. And that's tough for most people to discern unless they see the big picture. And of course, like with most cults, once they believe in their ideal, and even in the small form or the large form, seeing anything outside of that ideal is very, very difficult. This is why, um, you know, the quantum physics book had to be about, you know, a story to help people listen to it because it was such a radical ideal that is now pretty mainstream science. Mainstream enough that it's advanced pretty much everyone's knowledge of black holes and to the point where, you know, we can enjoy a movie based on this, you know, textbook, essentially. And this is how things go. This is why, you know, Plato's allegory of the cave is the same story as The Matrix it's just different details. We have different stories for, you know, the same data points sometimes all throughout time. Very, very important stuff needs to be retold and updated. So how does this all tie into what religionism is? Who am I to make up a new word? Who am I to try and get people to want to use a new word that probably is upsetting to a lot of people? who practice ideas such as religion. Well, religionism is something that should be a friend to anybody who practices religion because every religion that I've experienced um, personally or through the stories of others, but mostly everything um, I've experienced personally, whether I've been in the religion or I've been you know, experiencing it without judgment, um, and trying to set aside my bias long enough to understand that they're not so different. And the thing that I see is that every single religion is aware of a cult-like mentality within them. And they consider them either the fundamentalists or, you know, the weird people with, you know, 
follow a little bit too much of the old stuff or they're too traditional. There are many ways to say this. I've heard many, many different ways to explain this cult-like mindset. And it's difficult because lots of bigger religions tend to have um, big stigmas against the word cult. So they'll call it culture or they'll call it, you know, the reformists or uh, the excommunicated, different different ways of explaining uh, this essentially a, a phenomenon of uh, what I am calling religionism, where essentially what we're seeing is cults 2.0 and ideals 2.0, where they are more the downside of both of those things where um, it seems that uh, you can have cults based on ideals that have no organization are decentralized in nature, have no clear directive or dogma, but just seem to be uh, the dangerous ideals um, ranging from different you know, degrees of danger, depending who you're talking to. But for me, danger is danger is danger. I don't care if you're murdering, raping, or molesting. Measuring the severity or the degrees of badness, whether it's those things or, you know, other types of abuse or verbal abuse or hatred or judgment. It's measuring degrees of badness feels a lot like dick measuring, but instead of measuring whose is longer, people are trying to compete to cut off more of their dicks. It just seems self-destructive in nature. Is What's the gain to see who's worse than you? It's, it's very, very confounding to me. And I see this at the root of religionism, which should not have the stigma of cults or, you know, dangerous ideology. Instead, this should be a segue for people who are aware of the unspoken of growth of ideals that are contrary to any narrative of love, whether they be traditional or new. We're all aware of it and we don't want to look at this I know I didn't want to look at, you know, this reality for a long time. But when I looked at it close, I had to realize that the reason that no one is encouraged to look at this from on tops of their organizations, whether it's a political party or, you know, the right form of government or a sports team or a franchise or a large company or studio or, you know, any sort of industrial complex. The people who don't want to look at it on the base level, whether it's, you know, the sports fan or uh, the small business owner or the person who doesn't really, they're, they're independent in nature and or independent of parties or uh, they don't want to subscribe to a right form of, you know, everything seems to be kind of muddied and they they don't want to look at that because, and they're not encouraged to look at that. I think that's why they don't want to look at it because they're encouraged to at least believe that the people at the tops of their organization are figuring things out. But some of these organizations overlap. So it's like you have a corruption in one organization and the only people who can overlook it unfortunately, are also corrupt. So it results in nothing in the long term. It's like an investigation that kind of disappears or becomes fruitless. And this is almost systemic in nature. It really is systemic in nature. And it's almost like you have cults denying the cultishness, cultures or subsidiaries of their larger organization like they're all trying to save face because maybe they know something we don't that um if 
they were to call out this cult-like nature, they'd lose control. What if they drew a fine line between these cult-like or dangerous ideals and realized that they were sorely outnumbered? I think the fear of losing control is not something to be underestimated. Imagine if somebody asked you to give up full control over your life. Full control. What would the anxiety initially be? You'd probably be terrified. You wouldn't be sure whether or not that's, you know, would that, do they mean that they want you to go out and rape and pillage and thieve and... No. I mean, it, it, is that what you wanted? If If you didn't have, you know... If you were told, you know, to let go of control, would you want to do those things? I think that's a very important question. I think the fear that that is inevitable in others is what gives us that knee-jerk reaction to losing control. If we lose control, things will go to hell. Things will become, you know, so chaotic that the world will go to shit. Like, that's, that's a very, very pessimistic view of the world that really echoes insecurities that I know I carried at one time within. And I realized when I tried to share a message of the contrary, I realized I was not alone in sharing this. In fact, the majority of people share this. An insane majority share this in different varying degrees, but to the extent that everyone seems to have some degree of religionism and this is not a bad thing. It just is. And we need to, you know, buck up and take care of it. Really take care of ourselves so that we can let go of the religionism that is feasting on the good ideas and the positive beliefs like a cancer. I see it like a cancer that no one wants to admit is there. But when you look at it, the same things that I see capitalists afraid of and the same things I see socialists afraid of tend to be big control. And the capitalists don't like the big control of big brother, big government. And the socialists don't like the big control of the industrialist complexes. But what's interesting is, is capitalists don't like the big cronious business industrial titan control. Like the small and medium business owner, they do not like this. And anybody who wants to become, you know, a big business in an ethical way, they they do not like the big conglomerate, like enormous industrial complexes that they don't believe are part of capitalism, but a leech on capitalism the same way that socialists are aware that tyrants are not inherent to socialism the same way unchecked capitalism leads to industrial titans and unchecked government leads to government tyrants and yet we still are debating which one of these is best to have more of. I think the point is we need to reassess the religionism that makes us so afraid from coming to terms with the fact that that much control isn't good on either side. And this is terrifying because the natural conclusion is, well, who do we give control to? And that's something that takes a lot of self-exploration as the right answer that I have found is right for me and the right answer that other people have found that lead them to agree with my right answer are the same answers that get argued against when people are trying to give the power to control the masses to their preferred ideal. We live in a digital age, an information age, where we do not need ideals to incubate good ideas. We know that good ideas don't need to be enforced 
unless the enforcement of bad ideas becomes the status quo. That is the only time good ideas need to be enforced. But if you eliminate the control required to enforce ideas, the default is that over time, bad ideas cannot gain the traction they need to become dangerous ideals. If this were the case, the entire world would be terrorist or Mormon or Christian or, you know, Democrat or Republican or Democratic or any of the, the right ideal would have come forth by now. The most powerful one, the most correct one would have come forth by now. But the fact is, is the internet age is not very nice to ideals because it's proverbially honest. Decentralization, which the internet was way more of in the 90s until it had more and more centralized nodes, was very, very intolerant of religion until it became more centralized in nature. It was easier to talk about religion. There were safe spaces to talk about ideals. There were also safe spaces to talk about other dangerous ideals, such as terrorism and whatnot. But the fact is, is ideals were used to harbor good ideas. The internet, by nature, we know that once something is on the internet, it can't be deleted that was the role of ideals for thousands of years to make sure that good ideas don't get quote unquote deleted. The internet is playing the same role as ideals through history, but in itself is void of an ideal, which means it doesn't play favorites. And what it does is it pokes holes in ideals until you get to the core idea. And the ideas are the only thing that could be good or bad. The internet only gives power to good ideas unless control and censorship and those things that are inherent to ideals gain more traction. That's why the internet is used way more to recruit for things like cults or terrorist organizations more post-2000 than it was pre-2000 when it was more decentralized in nature and you had more competition. Now that there's less competition and more censorship, more control, more curated safe spaces from upon high to protect ideals, has created, in essence, not only a safe space for the good ideals, but also the dangerous ideals. The internet is becoming more decentralized again with projects such as decentralized internet, not unlike Pied Piper, PiperNet from Silicon Valley. And there's a a programmer by the name of Mark Nadal is working with Marty Malmi, I think is his name, and they are creating a decentralized internet unlike anything I've ever seen. And there are others that are promoting and touting a decentralized internets, but this is truly genius, not unlike the same vision I saw in Silicon Valley, but in real life. And it's offline, which blew my mind. It's realizing that they're taking decentralization to the point where they're decentralizing internet as we know it, where it is not, you do not access internet. Your device is the, it's just mind blowing. And what does this mean? This means that good ideas will no longer need enforcement to survive. This means that bad ideas will never gain as much traction as a contrary good idea. And for every bad idea, there is a good idea. Unless you believe that there are no good people. 
unless you believe that yourself and everyone else is too evil to have a good idea. If you don't believe that, then the hope is in the future. Realizing that the internet is an incubator for all good ideas. It's the evolution of ideals. It's the ideal ideal without the imperfections of human definitions. It's realizing only the good ideas will survive over time and hubris that leads to corruption of control cannot thrive. And this, this is the future we face. A future of hope. A future of understanding. A future of tolerance of ideas, but ideals no longer need to be tolerated. All ideas can be tolerated for the goodness inherent in them alone. And there will be no toleration of bad ideas. This is what everyone wants. This is what everyone means when they say that they want something better. And by looking for the right answer, we miss the fact that there is no right answer as long as we're not all the exact same person. That there is no absolute rightness. That you cannot be absolutely correct. That as long as people are different, there are going to be different ways to live your truth. And if only good ideas can survive, what does that mean for things that the majority believe are bad ideas? Such as rape, murder, violence. And things can survive like love, self-defense, charity, forgiveness. Hope, trust, all of these things are paradoxical in nature. And we, we live in a reality of dualism where paradox is a bad thing. But if paradox is a bad thing, then love is a bad thing. Hope is a bad thing. Because without rest, there can be no hope. Without risk, there can be no love. Everything is that is good is paradoxical. It takes risk. It takes a risk that there is no absolute right way to get to love, that there is no absolute right way to get to hope, that there is no absolute right way to get to the future. That if you want to believe in love and trust and good ideas, we have to admit that these things are paradoxical in nature. And dualism does not support anything that's paradoxical. That's why it feels like there's less love. That's why there feels like there's less hope. That's why there feels like there's less understanding. That's why it feels like no one will listen but everyone wants to be heard. We need to let go of what we've been told is the right reality and explore the paradoxical natures of love, compassion, and understanding and realize that the ideas that were trapped inside ideals across the world and across cultures and across nations are now available so we can explore the ideas and find the practices that work right for us. If our ideals do not work perfectly for us, figure out your own perfect. Realize that if you can fail up, failure is a part of perfection. Being wrong is a part of perfection. Making mistakes is a part of perfection. The definition of perfection, that anything that is wrong, a mistake, or bad, 
is not part of perfection is a dualist reality. When in reality, perfection is paradoxical. You can fail your way to success. And you can succeed your way to failure. This is evident in the likes of Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla. Ask yourself, which one was in a paradoxical frame of mind? And which one was in the dualistic frame of mind? Things have been going on for much longer than we realize. The conspiracy theorists have hinted at it, but so many of them focus on messages of negativity and fear-mongering that they sound just like the people that they're bitching against. Do not listen to divisiveness. What this means is do not listen to the narratives of divisiveness. Listen to their ideas, but do not believe them until you listen to not only who they say are wrong, not only who they say are right, but more importantly, who they don't even want to acknowledge. Who is it that both the good and the bad don't acknowledge? Is esoteric information at the heart of those in power and in control? Or is esoteric information at the heart of the paradoxical understanding of life that has been hidden from us? Not unlike how Nikola Tesla did not become a talking point until almost 100 years, maybe even, I don't know the exact time frame, but like 100 years after his death. I think well over a hundred years after his death, we care about Tesla when he was doing things out of love and understanding and the benefit of mankind. He wanted, he had the tools for free energy. These things have been going on for a long time. And for a long time, I had no idea who he was other than an assistant of Thomas Edison. And it, that point you start to make a connection that it's not about who's right or wrong, but who has so little intention given to them that we don't think twice about not giving attention to them. Who do you know the least about? What ideas do you know the least about? What? Ask yourself, who are the sources of ideas? And then ask yourself, what do I know about this source? And explore any source that you feel like you know less than than you do of Thomas Edison. Because I can guarantee I didn't know much about Thomas Edison, but I know a lot more than I did about Nikola Tesla. And it wasn't even that he was bad. It's that he was a side note, almost a joke to look into. It was almost ridiculous to contemplate that he could have been more right than the main narrative of electricity. And then I started to say, what else could I have been wrong about? Who else could I have believed a narrative about and know truly nothing about and I dug deep for these things. I scoured the earth. I scoured the planet. I scoured the entirety of Gaia to find the answers hidden within, realizing that the evolution of such things as Gaia to the planet, to the globe, have gotten to this point where we realize that there are certain inherent principles that people have known about throughout the ages. Goodness, love, strength from within, self-governance, 
These are principles that have been echoed throughout time by spiritual leaders such as Jesus Christ and Buddha, by intellectual thinkers such as Marcus Aurelius and Martin Luther King Jr., and emotional leaders such as Nellie Bly and Alan Watts. We have seen these all throughout time. What if the answers that were esoteric in the times of Gaia, esoteric in the times of this planet, esoteric in the times of this globe, are the ones that have the least attention paid to them. Not the good guys, not the bad guys, but if you understand the principles of the attention economy that is inherent to anyone who knows how to gain power or money from things such as technology or anything with a screen. The attention economy is so powerful. It's why stories exist. It's why stories thrive through time. It's why Hollywood made so much money from movies and stories. It's why books made were the hot thing until movies and that it's why storytelling exists today and it's why the attention economy is stronger than ever in screens. And ask yourself, who has the least of your attention? Keep seeking for the ideas hidden in messages of love that other people are saying things not unlike, don't trust them, trust me, like you don't want to trust them because of this ad hominem attack on their, you know, way of thinking or they're crazy or they're, you know, witchcraft or whatever. It's it's realizing that these were the same excuses used to demonize things such as mental health or people of other races. These are the same excuses that they were satanic in nature. They were not to say that the bad has become the good and the good has become the bad. It's realizing that what we know is bad is a scarecrow tactic from what they're really afraid that we'll find. Deeper messages of love that have carried on through time that are not necessarily apparent in the mainstream messages of love or the mainstream messages of evil, but the ones that are almost so dismissed that we don't even think twice about them. We don't even think twice about looking into them. And then, then do we find that phrases such as you can't handle the truth. We don't have to be told that to believe it because of the truth of such things as love and peace and honesty are hidden in places where our attention is not invested because we're distracted by what's good and bad. We won't find this deeper understanding that seems to be so rare to find that we don't let ourselves listen long enough to be wrong about something that makes us feel uncomfortable because we're terrified of being wrong. But what if we let go of those fears of knowing more, realizing that Jesus taught a gospel of gnosis, which is how to know your spiritual truth. This is the same gnosis that Buddha taught, that Marcus Aurelius taught with Stoicism. This is the same gnosis that any spiritual leader that is promoting love will talk about. This gnosis, the know your spiritual truth. So why 
Is there ever fear to listen long enough to hear something in completion? We dismiss things before they're complete because we come to a conclusion that we can know everything that they know. But I know that I believe this for a very long time and that I, when I set aside those biases to dismiss even listening more to people that I didn't want to believe in, I was creating a divide. I was creating me and the others that I know more than them and they aren't worth my time to listen. How are we ever going to have a world of love and compassion and understanding and listening in a digital age if we can't listen to things that make us feel uncomfortable because they're different. We can't trust feelings of evil when we know just 50 years ago feelings of evil are what made people whisper about cancer. But when they started talking about this evil, they had more answers and more solutions. These feelings of something being evil are the same things that kept people from wanting to talk to people of a different skin color. And talking through this evil helped us realize that we were wrong about this evil. Anyone telling you that learning something is evil has something to hide, no matter their message of truth or love. Anyone who promotes truth or love should not tell you to blind yourself from listening to another human being. Because you will not magically be converted to evil by listening to it. This is a delusion. Even people that are delusional are more likely to let go of their delusion if first you listen to them and you make sure that they feel heard and make sure that they get out everything they need to get out. And if we can't set aside our fear of what we believe is evil, how are we ever going to start listening to each other more? How are we ever going to start loving each other more if we believe that our way is more right than everyone else's? We need to first listen and be open to the ideas of others and realize that we don't have to convert to learn that their ideas, while not completely right for us, hold that sliver of missing truth that we needed to make our ideas even better. To make our ideals work. I found this not by converting to all the religions, not by converting to what is called conspiracy theory, not by converting to others' delusions, but by genuinely listening, setting my bias aside, even when it is most difficult, especially when it is most difficult. And what I found is that often, while they are not absolutely right, Interestingly enough, most of them are not wrong. And the ones that are, after listening to them, sharing with them what you know, doesn't convert them, but leads them to convert themselves to knowing more. And that may look different than us, but it's not wrong. Please share this message with anyone that is ready to hear it like you are. Use the hashtag, not wrong. Share this message of hope and love. Realize that we have the power to tear down the divides in our sphere.
sphere of reality, our sphere of influence, our sphere of relationships. We have the ability to tear these down. And the more we share these messages of love, to listen to people, to find out what's not wrong, to set aside our ego and our desire to be absolutely right long enough to listen out of compassion and love and empathy, not sympathy and pity and judgment, but doing the hard thing to listen in a society where it's easier to create a bubble around ourselves and blame everyone else for popping it. This is not how we build loving, trusting, honest communities. This is how we build our individual walls to block out those that we love and blame it on them because we don't even realize we're setting up these walls. When we're so used to it, we don't even know where they come from. So we assume when they happen that it's the fault of the other because our ego doesn't let us believe that we're the one constructing these barriers. And oftentimes we are the ones that imprison ourselves. We see what others do that makes them stronger. And we memorize that piece of armor that we, we want to have for ourselves. And before long, we've constructed an entire suit of armor in our minds of all the strong assets. And we, we don't know how to use it. And in our time of desperation, we whisper to it with fear and breathe life into it out of fear to let it lead the way. And once it cuts through our fears, we realize it doesn't let go of that power, that it has embodied our fear. And it conquers us. And we obey these strong attributes that we want so much and we worship so much and we don't know how to use them. And now we've breathed life and fear into it and it keeps us in prison in our own mind. And realize standing up to this fear is the hardest thing we will ever do. It feels like a mental breakdown. It, it's an existential crisis. It really truly is. And it's sad that facing the suit of armor that we've breathed fear into and is imprisoning us, we're told not to face because it feels like an existential crisis, which is not a bad thing. We believe it's a bad thing because it's been equated to a mental breakdown, but it is not. It is an awakening of our own strength. We find this inner power and we strike down this fear. We find our fearlessness by taking a risk to strike down this fear that we don't believe that we can strike down until after we take the risk to try and we don't give up. And then we realize that there was no monster inside. And we reevaluate these pieces, these strengths on the ground. And then after this existential crisis that society has labeled as a mental breakdown, we can put on this suit of armor that we feel like we have woken up to for the first time, that we are seeing with new eyes. And we get to the point when we put on this entire suit of armor and we pick up the sword and it turns into a shield. And we realize the whole time we thought this shield was a sword. And when others come to us, they say, look at you with your strength of armor. Why do you not have a sword? How can you help us move forward? We want to follow you because you seem strong. You seem well defended. But how can you defend yourself without a sword? And you remind them in your own words something not unlike 
I do not need a sword, for they believe that my shield is a sword, and they will run in fear. How do you know they will run in fear? Because what I have overcome to get here is the only one who would oppose me and others. And they believe that my shield is a sword just as I believed it. This, this is the message of love. Please share what's not wrong in the world. Let people know that the answers of absolute truth they seek are hidden in what's not wrong. Search for what's not wrong. Search for hashtag not wrong. Search for the truth others cannot handle. Because you can handle the truth if you've made it this far. Search for you can handle the truth. Y-C-H-T-T dot com. Seek out, share the messages of love and hope to anyone who you hope is ready to hear it. Take that risk to share a message of love. Risk rejection so that others can know your personal truth. Realize that they are not rejecting you. They are only rejecting what they are afraid of. And leave with them your hope and your love. And they will find their way back to you. We are not alone. We are many. We are love. We are connected in love and now in technology. Go forth and share love. For it is not wrong.